Listeners, readers, welcome to the Foxed page, where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll come away with a better understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. I am Kimberly Ford, PhD in Spanish and French literature, one-time uh, adjunct professor at Berkeley, and lover of none other than Agatha Christie. I mean, I say that and I have to admit that I have come to Agatha Christie pretty late in the game. I discovered her during the uh, pandemic when I was in a home and um, basically like read all of the books that I had purchased to read and started going through some old copies uh, of, of books that were on the shelves, had been on the shelves for a long, long time and really discovered that I had been dismissing someone whose writing is absolutely incredible. So charming and so engaging and so smart and so um, sort of campy in the very best of ways and just really something that I was very happy to begin to explore. I'm still at my very sort of the beginnings of my exploration of Agatha Christie, uh, but I'm very happy to recommend her work. I think sometimes uh, those of you who have dived deep with me into lots of different books might think that I am not one for genre fiction. And that is in fact true. I'm not a huge lover of genre fiction. By genre, I mean romance, thriller, horror, detective um, gets kind of lumped in there, but I think actually there's some really excellent, I mean, there are excellent versions of all of that kind of, you know, all of those classes of writing, um, you know, chick lit, mommy lit, there's all sorts of genre fiction that I in fact really do like. Um, and the detective novel uh, was just one that I hadn't really explored very much, partially because you guys also know that I have a kind of a terrible memory and you know that I'm not often reading for plot. I am someone who, you know, my recall is fairly good when it comes to dialogue or when it comes to character development or different sort of elements of the text. But um, my like memory for what is happening is just not what it could be. I'm also someone who tends to not read very much for plot. I was so happy the other day because I heard an interview and Lydia Davis said that she often, um, you know, will stop reading a book well before she's done because she sort of sees what the author's doing. She's appreciating the prose and, you know, she doesn't feel the need to, to you know, move through 300 pages when she's kind of gotten it at about page 200. And I was like, oh my God, I'm just like Lydia Davis, which was really one of the happiest days of my life. Uh, but the point is that I am not someone who's like reading for this, like, oh my God, who done it? Sort of being side by side with the detective to sort of ferret out clues. My approach, which is much more focused on the prose and on the character development and on the more writerly elements, um, the fact that I find her fiction so engaging and delightful is really, um, you know, it's a very high recommendation on some level because I'm certainly not reading for the way that she has constructed, you know, the crime and, uh, you know, meted out all of the information and details. None of that is, is super important to me. And that's actually the stuff that she's very, very good at. One other note is that I have always loved the name Agatha. I mean, I love it. I love it. I would have loved to have named um, our daughter Agatha. I really wanted to name her Frances and everybody was like, absolutely not. That's a no can do. You can't do that. And I'm just a little sad that I didn't have a little more, you know, stick to my guns back then. We're probably not supposed to say stick to my guns anymore. Um, but I am very sad. I still, maybe a cat. I feel like Agatha is a very good name for a cat or like a basset hound. 
I feel like a basset hound named Agatha is just like a great idea. So honestly, we're already sort of off in a way, but I would like to take a step back and do what we always do, which is tell you why I think this is a book that is worth your time, and also um, to give you a quick agenda. First of all, um, we really haven't done any of this kind of detective fiction. Um, oh, I was gonna say that we aren't gonna do any more. I was gonna say this is kind of the first and last, but that is not true because I am dying to talk to you all about Dorothy Sayers, who was a contemporary of Agatha Christie, Agatha Christie is known as the queen of the detective novel, and I've read a couple of different things that call Dorothy Sayers the godmother of the detective novel, which, I mean, that's kind of cold, but also Dorothy Sayers is incredible. I like Dorothy Sayers' work better, actually, and so I'm really excited to dive into it. It's a little denser and a little bit more kind of... Um, it's, it's a little bit richer in terms of the prose, and I just absolutely love it. So we're going to do that at some point down the line. So this is not the last. So I wanted to dive in though, because she really truly is the queen of the detective novel. And I think um, this time of year is sort of a nice time of year to think about Agatha Christie, because for any of you who are looking for a gift before the holidays are over, um, that Agatha Christie is always kind of a great way to go, especially if it's someone you, um, maybe, you know, you do like a thing where you read a book together and then you discuss it. This is a great way to go because there really is something for everyone in these books. I also really wanted to read books that were sort of winter oriented. Um, right now I'm in New York and it's cold and we had a fire and it feels very sort of wintry and I was really wanting to read something that was kind of mirroring that. And happily, there is this volume of Agatha Christie that is um, Midwinter Murder. I love it. I love, I love the cover. I love all of the fireplaces. I love all of the fires. I love all the snow. There's lots and lots of snow in this volume. And it's a volume that really seems perfect, actually, for everybody on um, your holiday list. This is a short story collection, which I also really love. Um, Agatha Christie wrote a lot of novels, and, um, and she wrote a lot of short story collections. I really love this one. Um, the detective short story is really almost a subgenre unto itself. I also feel like um, the, the novel, the detective novel, having been something that I discovered during the pandemic, I realized that especially these books that are from the 20s, 30s, and 40s, these are books that offer an escape um, that, that is really maybe what some of us need right now. So I think this idea of, of reading something that is sort of charming and absorbing and engaging and from a very different world can actually be a real salve at this moment. So that was yet another reason why I think uh, that this is a good book for you to be reading now. The agenda today, we're going to talk a bit about the biography of Agatha Christie. Then, I can't read my notes here, um, we are going to talk about the genre, I believe that says, of the detective novel. No, that's not what that says. Oh gosh, do you know what that said? It said offensive. That's maybe why I couldn't read it. It's kind of jammed in between two other lines here. So we are going to touch on why in, in this day and age there is some uh, depictions in her work that we really need to be thoughtful about. Then we'll move on to the idea of this mystery genre and other genres and especially the genre um, of, of the cozy mystery, which is one, it turns out, I really love. Didn't even know it was one, but it's, um, it's my favorite type of mystery. Then we're gonna talk about the narrator. So 
almost all of these novels, that's not true. Uh, some of them are third person, some of them are first person, but the narrative uh, structure is very important in sort of all de uh, detective fiction, but certainly in Agatha Christie. And then we're going to talk about the prose, what I think makes it so, so strong. And we're gonna conclude with one of the endings of one of the stories, which I think is very sort of cozy and uplifting and perfect again for, uh, for the wintertime holiday season. Okay, we're gonna dive right on in. We're gonna talk uh, very briefly about Agatha Christie's biography. So she was born in 1890 in Torquay. I think you say Torquay, it might be Torquay. Or, oh no, it's Torquay. Torquay, which is really kind of a weird um, word. It's T-O-R-Q-U-A-Y. It's a seaside town in the south of England. It's a resort town. So she came from an upper middle class family who was very well off. And her father, I think, had done something like mercantile-ish and then had retired. And so they, she basically grew up in this resort town on the coast. She married, um, and again, she was born in 1890, which I really love that because you can just add 10 years to whatever year it is in um, the 20th century when her books came out and you know exactly how old she was when that happened. Speaking of which, she married a guy named Archibald uh, Christie in 1914. So she was 24 years old and they were married for about 13 years. They had one daughter named Rosalind. And then um, I actually can't remember what happened with that marriage. I think it went south. I think it was uh, just not, can we say that? I don't know if we can say that or not. Um, it did not end well. I don't know if he died. Maybe he died or maybe something else happened. She married a guy named Max Malawan. And interestingly, uh, in 1924, in between her two marriages, her mother had also died at that point. And there was an 11 day period where Agatha Christie was missing. And it's still this kind of weird, mysterious thing. I had no idea. It's very interesting. She has a lot of really great biographies that have been written about her. So um, if you're into that, it's really a very interesting state of affairs. During the wars, both the First World War and the Second World War, she worked as like a volunteer nurse in, um, in these dispensaries. I don't mean, um, you know, grass, dope, weed. Um, I don't mean that kind of dispensary. I mean like in a pharmacological dispensary. But those were really good for her because of course she learned about all of the poisons and all these kind of things that will come into a very important play in her later fiction. She wrote, uh, oh, and she died in 1976 at 86. See how that math is working so well for me today? Um, she died in 1976 had a, of, of natural causes, as they say um, in obituaries from 1976 in England. She um, had, she wrote 66 detective novels and 14 short story collections. She wrote a bunch of plays. Her play, The Mousetrap, is the longest running play ever. It has been um, like in, it has been like whatever, it's been on stage uh, in London since 1952. And all the way until 1921, there was a year long break because of the pandemic. But other than that, from 1952 until today, it has been running. It's the longest running uh, play of all time. She um, is, she was sort of the queen of the detective novel during the golden age of detective fiction. So this was kind of in the middle of the 20th century, a little bit before that in sort of the 30s and 40s. You have people like Dashiell Hammett, you have people uh, like Dorothy Sayers, who I just mentioned. You have all of these writers, um, um, of course, Raymond Chandler, I always say Raymond Carver, who is a realist 
dirty realist writer from later. Um, but you have a lot, there's a lot, a lot of detective fiction being written at this time, and she still emerged as sort of the, the queen of the whole endeavor. She is the most high-selling author of all time in history. I think except for Shakespeare and the Bible. She sold two billion copies of her work um, and is the most translated author of all time. And I just love that. I love that for her. I love that she's just had this enormous, enormous success and that she continues to be read. Uh, and just honestly, there's a, a sort of a classic warmth and, and an engagement about her work that is just so well-deserved. I just really, um, you know, can't, can't say enough good things. Okay, now we're gonna dive into this idea of depictions in her work. There are depictions of Italian people, of Jewish people, of um, anyone who's sort of non-European. The Americans don't come out looking that great. I will say also that she has some pretty good, um, you know, barbs at English people as well. I am fairly certain that we could find some pretty reprehensible colonial thinking um, there's one called Ten Little Indians. There's another one, I'm forgetting the title because I didn't read it, uh, where it, it really has a lot to do with, um, you know, sexual assault and abuse, essentially an abusive relationship. Ultimately, the man is punished, but it really is a book that's a sort of a meditation on all of the difficulties uh, that women have to endure. There is a legacy of her work that is somewhat darker, um, but I will stand by the writing that I am promoting here. Um, everything that I read in um, winter, midwinter murder, um, there wasn't anything egregious in there. That may be also because in 2023, according to the Telegraph, some of her works were edited. So they were edited in order to remove some of this language that people found offensive. And this caused a whole stir. For me personally, there's enough kind of promotion of women and enough uh, um, sort of there's just enough engagement and enough really good in the work that I find it something um, that, that I return to every once in a while and that I'm certainly happy to promote. I mean, you should really read Claire Dieter. Wait, I have this book right here. You should really read this. this it's called Monster, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dieter. It's amazing. It's an amazing book. She has a very good defense of Nabokov in there um, about Lolita in particular. You can go back to the Foxed page and listen to the uh, the podcast about Claire Dieter's book and also the one about Lolita. But in this case, um, it has helped me understand that, um, well, Claire Dieter says it about Woody Allen movies and about Roman Polanski movies, that there are just not that many opportunities for us as consumers of art to really feel good and to feel, um, you know, that, that certain frisson that you have when you're reading um, work or watching movies that really engage you and really mean something to you. And Claire Dieter's thesis is that you have to make your own personal calculation. So I have made my personal calculation. Uh, you know, she's a woman who was born in 1890 and has, you know, perspectives that are, are not um, necessarily ones that I espouse and I'm happy to understand that this was a person who had some ideas that I did not necessarily agree with. Okay, we are gonna move on now to the idea of the mystery as genre fiction. So I mentioned before, um, you know, romance fiction, uh, mommy lit, chick lit, um, uh, detective work, uh, you know, horror like Stephen King, post-apocalyptic writing. There are all sorts of different genres. When people say commercial fiction or genre fiction, they often mean um, work that's kind of pulpier, you know, like more like a Harlequin romance or like 
someone who's really just churning out book after book after book after book, um, that tends to be more sort of genre fiction. And, um, you know, they tend to fit into these kind of nice, uh, not nice, but like they fit into these sort of tidy categories and they tend to not be very inventive and they tend to have a formula that they follow. And actually there is a lot of satisfaction to be had in genre fiction. So the mystery genre is particularly satisfying for the following reasons. One is that you get to have this, um, this experience of, of sort of like crime or murder or some sort of excitement. You get to have some sort of vicarious adventure in, in what tends to be, I mean, certainly with somebody like Raymond Chandler, um, in his case of Los Angeles, where you get this real sense of like, you know, um, really like dark forces and dark forces meaning crime, not like supernatural forces. You, you get to sort of dip a toe into um, a world that is not your own because hopefully not your own because it's made up of murder and violence and often sexual exploits, all sorts of things that, that generally people don't have a lot of experience with. You also, as you are reading, if you are the type of mystery reader um, who's kind of your average mystery reader and not someone who is in it just for the prose, you have the satisfaction of sort of solving this puzzle. You're wanting to figure out who in fact committed this crime. And a lot of detective writers will sort of pepper the text both with red herrings, which are, you know, clues to mislead you, and then also with clues that will lead you toward the actual solution of the crime. And this, all of that is very satisfying. So there, there's a way that this can feel very tidy and it can feel very satisfying because you both have a puzzle to solve and you're getting to live sort of vicariously. And lastly, you have this real sense of justice. So usually what happens in these uh, books, in these detective fiction books, is that justice prevails. You know, in the end, the person who, uh, you know, committed the crime is brought to justice and the victim, I mean, usually in fact, the victim is dead, but maybe it's the victim's family or at least people have, you know, an answer uh, to the question of like, who is responsible for this? And usually some sort of justice is meted out. So there is the satisfaction too of sort of, um, you know, having justice come to the fore and things being, um, you know, sort of morally righted, which actually is very, um, it's a perfect sort of segue into the next point I want to make about the mystery genre, which is that it tends to be sort of, I keep saying in my mind, morally corrective. So it tends to be corrective in the sense that it's always um, punishing people who are doing things that tend to be sort of anti-social in the sense of like anti-societal. So in this case, or, or in that vein, you can understand that it also is fairly conservative. So a lot of detective fiction is sort of reinforcing, you know, what we think of as like family values. And I don't mean that in a weird super right wing kind of, you know, weird dog whistle kind of way. I just mean it in terms of like, you shouldn't have adultery and you shouldn't kill people and you shouldn't be abusive and you shouldn't steal things and you shouldn't plot to kill your aunt because she has a large fortune. So these really egregious crimes that are committed um, are, are things that are sort of against the family or they are against society or they are against the establishment. So when justice is served, it is usually in a way that reinforces those morals and those standards that, that, that sort of are decided by society. You can understand where, um, for someone who is very progressive, like I am, that sometimes this gets to be slightly problematic because you are reinforcing the idea of, um, you know, sometimes the patriarchy or sometimes bodies of authority that are not really my favorite bodies of authority. Notably, 
we almost always have amateur detectives. I mean, famously, it's not Scotland Yard and it is not the police department in Los Angeles. So we are generally not reinforcing the authority of these sort of standard institutions because usually we have either a private investigator or in the case of Agatha Christie, we have someone like Hercule Poirot or you have Miss Marple. Um, or Mr. Quinn, you have these different detective figures. He's kind of a minor one, Quinn. Um, but the, you know, you have these detective figures who are not part of a like you know an arm of the law. So you do have this sense of of an outsider as uh, you know reinforcing these morals. So for me, that's a little bit easier to handle than the idea of like the Los Angeles Police Department um, or Scotland Yard really like reinforcing their authority. But instead, it's this idea of, of someone who's slightly outside the system, and yet we usually see them reinforcing uh, the system. So in this vein, you can mostly think about perpetrators as being people, again, who are cheating, people who are philanderers, people who are abusive, people who are greedy, people who are um, you know, underhanded or otherwise kind of um, you know, sociopathic. So, all of this idea of, of these perpetrators is coming to justice. I like to read with a little bit of a critical uh, mindset and just make sure that I'm not like really rooting for someone who is simply doing something that is slightly outside the norm. Wait, did I just say that backward? I might have. Okay, um, and the last thing that I will say about this idea of this sort of corrective, um, you know, sort of bent that the and, and sort of conservative bent that we have to the detective genre is again that the golden age of detective fiction was sort of 30s, 40s, 50s, a little bit into the 60s. Um, but that, I think, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not an expert on this genre, but um, certainly during the middle of the 20th century. And you can understand why, you know, if you think of the 1950s in the United States, at least, it was a time of incredible um, conformation like everybody was conforming, you know, to the same thing and everybody wanted the white picket fence and the two car garage and the two kids and the like very patriarchal heteronormative family system. And everybody was working their job nine to five and everybody needed to look like, um, you know, the cleavers. Right. Isn't that his name? Um, leave it to Beaver. So you have this real idea of, of um, wanting everybody to sort of look the same. And of course, this was very racist and this was very elitist and this was very capitalist. So all of those ideas that were being reinforced in the United States after the end of the Second World War, those are a lot of the same ideas that were being promoted and being reinforced by the detective genre. So it was a time when, um, you know, again, in the 30s, even in the 20s, a lot of, not a lot, but some of the, the works, the short stories that are in this Agatha Christie collection, we're going to look at one that's from 1924. That's a little bit earlier, but you really do have this sense of, of, of a period of time of real instability in Europe and in the United States, where you really, um, you know, people who were writing in English really were, I think, looking for structure and looking for a reinforcement of, of what was right and what was wrong because things had gotten um, very unstable. And, and really, I think people were really seeking out this idea of, of reinforcing what they felt was sort of good in the world. Okay, so I want to move um, to this idea of the cozy detective subgenre. So the cozies were, again, a subgenre of the detective uh, fiction. And what the, it's very sort of easy to, to think about them. Most of the time, whatever the crime was happens off stage. So you don't hear about the way that someone was murdered. 
um, if there was violence, you, you, it's sort of, you know, it's reported afterward, sometimes by a cozy fire, um, but it is not, you know, you're not seeing it up front. And um, again, you have this amateur detective. And in, in the case of um, both uh, Dorothy Sayers with Harriet Vane and also with Agatha Christie with Miss Marple, you in fact have like this little unassuming, well, Harriet Vane was awesome and she was an academician and she was a single woman and she was very, um, you know, sort of striking and amazing and powerful. Miss Marple, on the other hand, is like, you can picture her with like a, her little cardigan and her little support hose and her pearls, maybe not even pearls. She probably didn't go in for pearls. She's too practical. Um, but you see her kind of an older spinster sitting by the fire who is, you know, solving all of these different mysteries because she is very in tuned and she's very bright and she's very uh, observant. But she is, you know, like a little old lady who is solving these mysteries, usually in a very cozy. I mean, if she's not in a drawing room by a fire, she's like in a in a garden, you know, so you have this very sort of cozy feeling about her. And even when you're talking about Hercule Poirot, we really do have this kind of cozy atmosphere. And I keep using the word charming, and that is not a mistake because it does, these cozy detective novels, in fact, do feel very charming. Okay, we are gonna move on to talk now about this idea of this amateur sleuth who is the narrator. So I mentioned Hercule Poirot, I mentioned Miss Marple, there's that Mr. Quinn. We have Harriet Vane, who is in Dorothy Sayers' work. We have the private investigator Philip Marlowe in the case of uh, of Raymond, Raymond Chandler. So um, we have these people who are, again, outside the system. They are, in fact, outsiders. In the case of Hercule Poirot, he's even further outside, you know, the, the sort of establishment because he is Belgian. So I like the fact that he's not French. I think there's, um, you know, there's always a bit of anti, uh, you know, antagonism between France and England for a bunch of different reasons, historically, um, you know, both like ancient history and, and more modern history. So I think the fact that he is from Belgium, but has a lot of the charm of a French person. I mean, this is maybe like not great what I'm saying right here, but I think it is, it's a way of, of giving him a European flair and having him speak French, which was a language a lot of people speak. There's such a nice amount of French in Agatha Christie. I love it. As someone who is um, a French speaker, I am endlessly delighted by the, um, the sort of reverse translation that she does because you can kind of reverse engineer the French and you're like, oh my gosh, wait, that is how that works in French. So it's, it's totally delightful. But so she has access to the French language, but she also is choosing someone who is outside of England and someone who is not as kind of mired and as um, you know acquainted with everything that's happening. So there's a little distance that allows Hercule Poirot both to make funny observations uh, about life in England, but also to be sort of extra sensitive to things that are maybe, um, uh, you know, unusual because he's not kind of a fish in water. So um, part of this question, you know, as we're, as we're thinking about literature in general, we always need to think, you know, sort of, so what? So we say, okay, yes, these are these amateur sleuths, but, you know, what is the significance of that? Why is that important? One of the reasons is that it's much more relatable as the reader to think that you could be, you know, living vicariously and solving this murder or this crime vicariously um, when it is an amateur person. It's much easier 
for example, for me, a 54-year-old woman, to think about Miss Marple and think like, oh, okay, wait, I can picture myself in a drawing room, you know, with my little heels and my, my cardigan sweater. You know, I can picture that happening and putting together, um, you know, pieces of gossip and details that I see around a house or a town. That is easier for me to relate to than, for example, you know, crime that is being solved by someone at MI5 or MI6 or like some FBI agent or some undercover spy or someone for the CIA. So I can I can much more relate, in fact, to Miss Marple. And again, Hercule Poirot, he is an outsider, but he's also, he's a little bit of an everyman in that he's kind of bumbly and he's kind of, he's got like an egghead and he's kind of, he's got that ridiculous little um, mustache. And boy, does Hercule Poirot have an incredibly storied career in film. Um, I didn't even talk earlier about the zillions of adaptations for both stage and for theater. I mean, I think there are like three that have come out recently. We had that really beautiful adaptation of Death on the Nile, and before that was the Orient Express, and now there's something else that's kind of like an a la Agatha Christie, but it's not, or maybe it's actually like depicting her. I'm very interested in it, but I can't remember what it is now. But so many people have played um, Hercule Poirot. We have Kenneth Branagh, Albert Finney, um, I can't even remember all the different people, but they're just, there's so many great people who want to play this kind of bumbly, I'm going like this because he has those mustaches, you know, those little bigotes. Um, in fact, he sleeps at night, you know, when he's like on the train or whatever, and he's in his adorable like overnight, you know, berth. And he has like some little cover that he wears over his ears, you know, to make sure that his mustache is in, is in good shape and looking dapper the next day. But he is, you know, he's a little bit um, kind of pompous and a little bit funny and a little bit of a goofball and his English is really not that great and he does not seem particularly intelligent. So you have this sense of someone that a lot of people, frankly, can relate to. So another important element about the narrator of these detective uh, fiction, these detective novels, is this idea of the sidekick. So, you know, famously Sherlock Holmes has uh, Dr. Watson. And in the case of Hercule Poirot, we have um, Captain Hastings. And Miss Marple has a couple of different people. She's often in conversation with someone who ends up sort of acting as a sidekick. Harriet Vane very famously has Lord Peter Whimsey as her sidekick. So the reason why most of them have these sidekicks is a very practical thing. And it's so, it's like, it seems so cool to me that this works so well. But you can understand that the prose would not be as interesting if like Sherlock Holmes just had to be like thinking to himself like, oh my gosh, I wonder what happened then. And I wonder why this, you know, chair is out of place. And I wonder why there's this footprint here. But instead, you know, you have Watson, who I think sometimes plays dumb. I have not read a lot of Sherlock Holmes. I really loved um, the television series, though. Wow. With Benedict Cumberbatch and Andrew Scott. Wow. Wow. Really great television. Um, but you have, you need that person, that other person to be able to ask questions because lots of times, you know, then the main detective person will be able to give a recap or they'll explain something in a way that's very helpful for the reader as well. But it functions much, much better if you have a dialogue um, because essentially that, that Watson character or um, the Captain Hastings character with Hercule Poirot is standing in for the reader and being like, but wait, what did you notice about the doorway? And you know, oh wait, but how come the key had to be in the lock? You know, all of these different questions that then um, sort of tee up 
our detective figure to explain, in fact, what they are thinking and all the sort of genius that we are living vicariously through. So this idea of the sidekick is very important. Also, um, sometimes the sidekick can act as sort of a foil. So in the case of Sherlock Holmes, you have this really nice interplay between the two of them. And it's the same with Captain Hastings, who is British, with Hercule Poirot, because um, they're very different people. And so you have them as sort of foils. We also see, um, we're going to look actually, um, oh, not quite yet. Oh yeah, we're, so we're going to start taking a look at some of the pros now um, by looking at this narrator and how the narrator functions. So we're going to look on page 119, and um, this is actually a little bit of a long chunk, but I really, um, I like the idea of taking some time here because I find it so engaging and so, um, this is going to be a good way to really take a look at the pros. The coming of Mr. Quinn. It was New Year's Eve. The elder members of the house party at Royston were assembled in the big hall. Mr. Satterthwaite was glad that the young people had gone to bed. He was not fond of young people in herds. He thought them uninteresting and crude. They lacked subtlety, and as life went on, he had become increasingly fond of subtleties. So here we have this Mr. Satterthwaite, and he is in fact going to um, be sort of our, our main sleuth in this case. Mr. Satterthwaite was 62, a little bent, dried-up man with a peering face, oddly elf-like, and an intense and inordinate interest in other people's lives. All his life, so to speak, he had sat in the front row of the stalls, watching various dramas of human nature unfold before him. His role had always been that of the onlooker. Only now, with old age holding him in its clutch, he found himself increasingly critical of the drama submitted to him. He demanded now something a little out of the common. So importantly, we just have some very basic things here, which is that usually it is a third-person narrator. So uh, something like, it was New Year's Eve. The elder members of the house party at Royston were assembled in the big hall. So we have, you know, the time and the place. Everything is being set up in a very orderly fashion by this kind of disembodied voice, this omniscient third-person narrator. So we're beginning kind of far away, the camera's pulled way back, and then we're kind of moving in, and we're realizing that we are, in fact, that sort of our perspective is aligned here with Mr. Satterthwaite. So again, Mr. Satterthwaite was glad that the young people had gone to bed. So not only, we still are in the third person, because we're saying Mr. Satterthwaite thought something, something, it wasn't I thought something, um, but he, it's still third person, and yet we are in his consciousness. So we've gone very quickly from being sort of, you know, in, in this sort of more broad context to really being inside his thoughts, which is that he doesn't really like young people. So I think probably a lot of readers of detective fiction are older folks, and um, really that appeals, you know, this idea of being able to sort of not appreciate the hustle and bustle of, of all the youngsters. Um, we also have some important things that are very typical of Agatha Christie, which is there's a lot of classism in the sense that, you know, the, the finery of like these country homes and whatnot are sort of a matter of course. It's all sort of like, oh, you know, um, uh, the elder members of the house party at Royston were assembled in the big hall. There's a lot of classist stuff happening because there's an assumption that we understand that Royston would be one of these big country homes. We understand what a house party is. Um, you know, friends for the weekend, we understand what a big hall is, all of this kind of stuff. So um, I think that you could criticize Agatha Christie for being classist and elitist. But honestly, for someone like me, big fan of Downton Abbey, big fan of The Crown, 
um, you know, somewhat enamored of the royal family. This, I like this. I mean, this is very interesting to me to, to sort of um, have a, a small experience of what it might be like to be in one of these uh, big fancy homes back in, uh, you know, the first half of the 20th century. So you have this third person narrator, somewhat omniscient, and then generally will move um, fairly close to someone, in this case, Mr. Satterthwaite, but sometimes other people. Okay, and then um, I wanted to read on this next part here. Um, this is when Mr. Satterthwaite is, is describing one of the, um, it's not one of the hosts, but one of the other guests. He had never met Alex Portal before, but he knew all about him, had known his father and his grandfather. Alex Portal ran pretty true to type. He was a man of close on 40, fair-haired and blue-eyed like all the Portals, fond of sport, good at games, devoid of imagination. Nothing unusual about Alex Portal, the usual good sound English stock. So you could in fact think that this is like a promotion of this kind of you know English stock, but in fact, this idea of devoid of imagination is obviously critical. And this blonde hair, blue eyed thing um, really is set up in contrast to the fact that Mr. Satterthwaite is in fact elf-like. Um, he's a little bent, dried up man with a peering face, oddly elf-like. But we are sympathetic to Mr. Uh, Satterthwaite. We're sort of in Satterthwaite. Um, sadder, Thwaite, we're, we're sort of with him in terms of our perspective and, and we, are, we are meant to sort of share his different thoughts, like the youngsters are not that great in a herd like that. And then this, um, you know, this sort of typical English stock, like sports, they're all about their grandfathers and their fathers and they are totally devoid of imagination. So I think sometimes people read that for fa at face value. My argument would be in fact that there's a little tongue in cheek here and a little criticism of these English upper classes um, that you see throughout Agatha Christie, um, but it's also kind of delightful because you get to poke fun at how elitist and classist and terrible they are, but also um, you get to sort of enjoy the weekend at their home. Another example of a narrator. This is um, The Mystery of Hunter's Lodge on page 222. So here we have um, Hercule Poirot is making uh, his, his entrance into our lecture today. And we have him here, this is a slightly different sort of narration. We have him here with Captain Hastings who is um, narrating this from the first person, which is not, not totally typical, um, but we do have a first person narration. After all, murmured Poirot, it is possible that I shall not die this time. Coming from a convalescent influenza patient, I hailed the remark as showing a beneficial optimism. Yes, yes, my little friend continued, once more shall I be myself again, the great Hercule Poirot, the terror of evil doers. Figure to yourself, mon ami, that I have a little paragraph to myself in society gossip. But yes, here it is. Go it, criminals all out. Hercule Poirot, and believe me, girls, he is some Hercules, our own pet society detective, can't get a grip on you. Because why? Because he's got la grip himself. So in this case, grip, um, G-R-I-P-P-E, is another word for the flu. So, I mean, this is an interesting thing because the, the Spanish flu, the big uh, flu influenza pandemic, 
that happened, I believe it was 1914. I think this is maybe not that same one, um, but we do have this idea here of, of flu as being very serious. And it, even if it wasn't directly talking about that, the flu would have been something um, that, that really would have struck, you know, fear into, into most readers' hearts. So what we have here, though, is Poirot reading this and really enjoying the fact that he is, um, you know, known in this gossip column as, as you know, this sort of amazingly strong and like really, um, you know, uh, talented detective. Um, it, but we have this, we know, in fact, that Captain Hastings is seeing this all uh, through a lens of humor. So um, lots of times, they're right from the beginning of these stories, we understand that we are meant to take Hercule Poirot with a little uh, grain of salt, and we are meant to laugh a little bit at him. So in this case, again, we have this first person narrator who is Captain Hastings, who um, but operates awfully close to a third person narrator. So we're not learning a ton about Captain Hastings. It's not all of his inner thoughts. He's simply reporting to us what is happening. So here we have a third person narrator. This story is called Christmas Adventure. And um, we have uh, Hercule Poirot speaking with a young woman, um, you know, sort of a late teenager, maybe early 20s, in another one of these family homes who are gathered in the wintertime. And Hercule Poirot says this. And now, mademoiselle, what is your trouble? You are not like me, old and alone. You are young and beautiful, and the man you love loves you. Oh, yes, it is so. I have been watching him for the last half hour. The girl's color rose. You mean Roger Endicott? Oh, but you have made a mistake. It is not Roger I am engaged to. No, you are engaged to Mr. Oscar Levering. I know that perfectly. But why are you engaged to him since you love another man? The girl did not seem to resent his words. Indeed, there was something in his manner which made that impossible. He spoke with a mixture of kindliness and authority that was irresistible. This is, it's a perfect example of the way that Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple, because they are so incredibly unassuming, you know, they're both a little bit goofy. Miss Marple's much older, um, you know, Hercule Poirot, we have a language barrier. We have, uh, you know, his sort of goofiness and his ability to sort of say things because um, he is so unassuming. So he's someone, you know, he thinks quite highly of himself in kind of a funny way, at least to, to those around him. Um, they're sort of, you know, humored by the fact that he thinks he is so wonderful because he is, in fact, a little bit bumbly. And of course, Miss Marple is limited by being a woman and being an older woman. So you have this sense of these people as being very unassuming. And it's such a good example here, this idea of um, he spoke with a mixture of kindliness and authority that was irresistible. So when we have, you know, that's a very kind of straightforward example or description of the way that his voice, in part, is really allowing this young woman to confide, and certainly enough, she does. And then just a little bit further down on that same page, we have a very good illustration of this idea of um, some of these narrators, Hercule Poirot, as being an outsider who is able to, to sort of shine a light onto some of the social uh, conventions that are not, um, you know, that, that seem sort of unusual. So he says, it is droll the way they arrange marriages over here, interpolated Mr. Poirot. No order, no method, everything left to chance. So I imagine that has some reference to do um, with how they arrange marriages in Belgium. I'm not sure how that is done. I'm also not sure how they do things in England, but maybe this idea of falling in love and marrying for love um, is a strange thing. 
or maybe this idea that she's engaged to someone just because it's a good um, financial match is not um, sitting well with him. So it's um, this is an example of Agatha Christie shining a light on to uh, a certain convention in English society. It's not one that I'm understanding very well because I don't have the context of the Belgian part and the English part, but it does give you a good sense if you were a British person um, that you would have an, uh, you would you would have a sense that in fact the way that you do marriage is not the only way that marriage is done. And in fact, um, this may be a hilarious joke that you are getting, um, or at least it is something that is making you think a bit about your conventions. There's a lot of reinforcing the fact um, you know that that women want to get married and women want to, um, you know, have romantic relationships and they want to be a sort of part of a partnership with a man. There's a lot of sort of normative stuff going on. But there are also a lot of really memorable women and there are a lot of very smart women. And obviously Miss Marple uh, in and of herself is just like this real testament to the strength of women and in fact older women. So there is a real sense um, of one of her main creations as being, uh, you know, a very feminist sort of icon in some ways. So I wanna take a look at the prose now. We're gonna take a look at three different passages. And it was so funny because I, I had the attributes of the prose that I find particularly engaging and interesting and well done. Uh, and, and it turns out that each of these passages sort of illustrated all of these aspects. So what I was wanting to sort of highlight is this idea of warmth and humor and um, this sort of campy feel, this slightly sort of tongue-in-cheek kind of melodramatic thing that I think Agatha Christie is so good at because it's often funny. So the first thing we're going to look at is on page 120. We're back with our Mr. Satterthwaite. He observed her now covertly. Interesting woman, very. So still and yet so alive. Alive, that was just it. Not exactly beautiful. No, you wouldn't call her beautiful but there was a kind of calamitous magic about her that you couldn't miss, that no man could miss. The masculine side of Mr. Satterthwaite spoke there, but the feminine side, for Mr. Satterthwaite had a large share of femininity, was equally interested in another question. Why did Mrs. Portal dye her hair? So I love this passage so much. I mean, here we have, the, the punctuation is so good. If you have your copy in front of you, we've got some M dashes, which are my favorite punctuation mark, um, ample use of those, which it's, you know, again, I mean, I'm sort of joking here, but um, it's very important when you are noticing punctuation or you're noticing a certain, um, you know, formatting on the page to ask, you know, what, why, what are we doing here? And these um, M dashes here are really livening up the prose. So um, this idea is so still and yet so M dash alive, alive. That was just it. Not exactly beautiful M dash. No, you wouldn't call her beautiful but there was a kind of calamitous blah, blah, blah. So you have this really beautiful um, way that we are both having um, this, the prose is kind of speeding up um, and it's lively, but it also, they have a very good um, depiction here, a very good sort of representation of the way that Mr. Satterthwaite, again, it's third person, not first, but we have this real sense of the way that Mr. Satterthwaite's thoughts are coming to him. So you have this very intimate um, sort of uh, perspective on the way that he is figuring these things out, and yet you have um, all of this kind of excitement and energy that is that is sort of um, you know allows you to join with what he is thinking. So we also have this. Um, there was a kind of calamitous magic about her. 
calamitous magic is so good. A lot of the prose is very unexpected. I mean, that is such a great adjective for this woman. So we're leading, we're leading toward um, the, the amazing final part of this, which is this idea of um, he was equally interested in another question. Why did Mrs. Portal dye her hair? And it is so funny to me because that's all in italics. So the whole paragraph is leading toward this one question. And then it's such a silly question. It's such a funny thing. And yet, of course, it ends up being a detail that has quite a bit uh, to do with the way that this all plays out and that, that sort of answer to the question of who done it. But you have this really beautiful prose that is so inventive and funny and warm. I love the idea of Mr. Satterthwaite as having both a masculine and a feminine side, and he as being so observant here. But exactly this idea of, um, of calamitous magic, there's just really some warmth and humor uh, and an unexpected uh, nature to the prose that I find so engaging. So in that same story um, on page 122, um, one of the things anybody who's listened to uh, any Fox Page uh, lectures, you may have heard me talking about figurative language. So figurative language is simply any kind of language where um, what you are reading, the words you are reading, means something other than what the words denote. So, um, you know, it can be a simile, a metaphor, personification, pathetic fallacy, which is just when nature is sort of mirroring. Um, there's a lot of pathetic fallacy in here because everything's stormy and, you know, it was a dark and stormy night, you know, that kind of Frankenstein moment. Um, but in this case, we have this really well done, um, this is sort of a personification thing. It's an anthropomorphization of, of, a, of a clock that I think is so well done. Um, on 122 here, kind of in the middle, an old grandfather clock in the corner groaned, wheezed, snorted asthmatically, and then struck 12. So I love this for so many reasons. The old grandfather clock, I mean, old, it's an old grandfather clock, but it's sort of really, um, you know, we know that Satterthwaite is kind of an older dude. There's a lot of oldness in these stories that's really charming and very sort of self-effacing and very kind of acknowledging the fact that older people are moaning and groaning and whatnot. Um, it's in the corner, so you have this idea of these older people, like Satterthwaite, as being sort of sidelined, but as having really a very good vantage then to sort of, uh, you know, sleuth. And, and groaning and wheezing, I mean, we had a grandfather clock growing up, and it did do that. I mean, it's sort of like that, that like winding up sort of thing before it would charm. You have this kind of wheezing and groaning feel. It snorted asthmatically. So any good writer knows that adverbs are really to be avoided. You should have verbs that are strong enough that you don't need an adverb. But in this case, snorted asthmatically, I mean, it's so charming and it's just such a, of a piece of this whole kind of, um, it's making me think of a pug dog for some reason, but it's just very much of a piece with this description that I really love. Snorted asthmatically and then struck 12. So you also have this, you know, it's midnight, all sorts of things happen at midnight, and this presumably is a detail, I cannot remember now, presumably is a detail that is important, this idea of striking 12, but she's not gonna simply say the clock struck 12, it is this idea of this whole kind of charming and somewhat comic, um, but, but very artfully done uh, example of uh, figurative language that's really, really just, it's like quintessential Agatha Christie in a way that I find so engaging. Um, and delightful. The last example of prose we're looking at is on page 281. So this is in Christmas Adventure. We are back with Hercule Poirot. And this is one of the one of the older women uh, who is among the the house party here. 
I hope the pudding will be good, said Miss Endicott apprehensively. But they were only made three days ago. Christmas puddings ought to be made a long time before Christmas. Why, I remember when I was a child, I thought the last collect before Advent, stir up, O Lord, we beseech thee, referred in some way to stirring up the Christmas puddings. So I don't know why I thought that was so charming and so funny. I mean, it's really very clever because you have this idea of, you know, throughout Agatha Christie's stories, people are misremembering things. There's a lot of question, you know, sort of being able to sort of remember exactly what you need to remember. And here we have kind of a, a lampooning of that. And we have this complete sort of misinterpretation of words, in this case of lyrics. And people, characters like Miss Endicott, who are really, um, you know, sort of fixated on whether or not the dessert is going to be good. There's a certain nostalgia and a certain beauty in sort of this kind of um, holiday preoccupation that someone is having with tradition and, you know, wanting things to remain the same and wanting to hearken back to youth that I think are, are particularly good at the holidays, but they're also things, you know, the, all of those uh, themes, you know, this idea of youth and this idea of things changing and this idea of, you know, quote unquote progress. All of these are things um, that the reinforcement of tradition in Christie tends to sort of push against. So I love this because it's light and it's charming and it's evocative of something very sweet, but it's, um, it, it, it's also, it's funny, but it's also, um, you know, it's doing a lot of work here at this point in the story. Very quickly before we wrap up, I just wanted to uh, touch on the idea again of these morally corrective kind of stories. So there's one example in particular where uh, we have someone whose own mother kills him and in part because he's going against the church. This is a story that takes place in Belgium and he's going against the church um, in France. There, there are some French people that are in Belgium. So uh, in part because he's going against the church, but also because the mother witnessed her son killing his own wife in order to be with another woman. So talk about morally corrective. I mean, this is someone who both, there's a religious reason behind it, but there's also this very important reason of him, in fact, being a murderer. So um, he is hung, you know, at the end of the story or hanged. I guess we say he is hanged at the end of the story. Um, so that is a very good example and, and kind of an extreme case because, again, it is his mother who is responsible for the, his ultimate um, exposure and his hanging. There's another one where a man commits suicide and there's some mystery about why that has happened. It's a nicely complicated story at the end. He's actually mistaken about someone who is arriving at the house uh, and he thinks he's going to be in trouble so he kills himself but he sort of does it preemptively because it turns out he is cheating on his wife and wants to be with another woman. So these are examples of people who are murderers and people who are philanderers, people who are disloyal, people who are going against the church. These are the types of people that Agatha Christie is using as you know people who sort of deserve what they get. So as we close here, we're going to look at the very end of Christmas Adventure, the last story in the book. Um, and here we again have Hercule Poirot. And um, we're going to just dive into the end. It doesn't really spoil anything, um, but it really is a good, uh, I think it's a very sweet way to end. And it's a good example of some of the things we've been talking about. I will say that it's kind of a lighthearted little romp here at the end. It's called Christmas Adventure. It's um, one that centers the children, but it's so satisfying because there are a bunch of twisty, turny things. And at one point, something very awful happens and you're just thinking to yourself, like, how is Agatha Christie doing this to children? Um, and then, you know, things unfold from there. 
So at the very end, though, we have two of the young girls. Um, part of this is because um, Poirot has been listening in on the children while the children are scheming to trick him. So he sort of knows all, all of the things that the kids are up to. And at the end, we have this very nice kind of holiday moment. He had meant to go into the library, but through the open door, he saw a dark head and a fair one very close together, and he paused where he stood. Suddenly, a pair of arms slipped around his neck. If you will stand just under the mistletoe, said Jean. Me too, said Nancy. Mr. Poirot enjoyed it all. He enjoyed it very much indeed. Happily, it is not Poirot who is, um, you know, sort of the predatory one here. Poirot is simply dragged under the mistletoe. Um, but the, uh, the ending, he enjoyed it very much indeed. I mean, you could say that this is like a little bit Oof, yikes. And I think it probably is a little bit like that. But I also think um, there's a context in which you can read this as the end of this sweet story that is about the children, uh, you know, conniving against Poirot and then Poirot sort of getting back at them and vice versa. Um, a very clever and very sort of, um, you know, uh, recondite kind of complicated story in lots of ways, which again is very satisfying. So I hope you've enjoyed uh, this little dive. It's not, not a deep dive, but we did a little dive into the detective genre and into Agatha Christie and why I find her prose so charming and so um, engaging. It's very satisfying in lots of ways. It's very nostalgic and it can be very charming. And honestly, anybody who needs an escape, um, you know, grab yourself a collection of short stories and you can um, just cozy up on the couch, get your feet by the fire like so many of the feet in these books and, um, you know, enjoy a little mystery and a little solution and a little nostalgia, all wrapped in some prose that I find incredibly engaging and inventive. And um, after that, you can get right back to the Fox page and find yourself something else to listen to. Happy reading.